0: And we are all going to have to figure out how to live together on less land, even if we do all the right things. Mm -hmm. And we either become more monstrous, more eugenicist, Mm -hmm. more fascist, or we radically change our values, right? Mm
1: Welcome to the Death Panel. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more, share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, and pre-order Jules's new book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny at Your Local Bookstore, or request them at your local library and follow us at deathpanel underscore. So I'm joined today by my co-host Jules Gil Peterson.
2: Hi everyone.
1: And the two of us are here with author and journalist Naomi Klein. Naomi is the author of the books No Logo, Fences and Windows, The Shock Doctrine, This Changes Everything, No is Not Enough, The Battle for Paradise, and On Fire. And she's here today to talk about her latest book, which is out this week, called Doppelganger: A Trip into the Mirror World. Naomi, welcome to the death Panel. It's really great to get a chance to talk to you for the
0: show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you.
1: So I'm sure you get this all of the time, but your work was very formative for me in terms of really shifting my politics in my early teens. I actually stole your first book, No Logo, from my first job. I uh, tossed it out the window into the dumpster behind the big soulless bookstore I worked at and then went around back during my break to scoop it up. Um, I think it was maybe 2005. You know, I started reading it at work. I really wanted it. I lived in Florida and I had this really long commute and gas was so expensive and my whole paycheck went towards like this pool of gas money that we would all put together to to get back and forth to school. So I figured, you know, you wouldn't mind having read the introduction, you know, of No No Logo that I borrowed it, uh, expropriated it from Barnes and Noble. But that book, thank goodness I stole that book because No Logo really sort of set some important things moving for me um, when I was very young. And it's really great to get a chance to talk to you, you know, twenty years after I first encountered your work. and I'm sure you hear stories like this all the time. And I really hope you're not cringing right now. But apologies if you are.
0: <laughs> but well, well i i'm 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 touched. I, I most of those stories don't involve dumpsters, so so that's a twist. Um, and i hope I hope that you're not too modest to to say that you are you are quoted a couple of times in this new book, and your work has also been important to me. So it's mutual.
1: Well, I appreciate that. It means a lot to hear that. And I uh, it it did really surprise me when I came, <laughs> when I came across that in the text of the book. Um I wasn't expecting it or aware that you sort of knew of the the work that we were doing. But I know that and and you talk about this in the beginning of Doppelganger, the way that no logo was sort of <laughs> received and the big deal that it became, you know, it, it kind of shifted how you were approaching some of your work. Um, you talk about in Doppelganger, you know, your frustration with and maybe I don't know if I'm projecting here, but it feels like there's almost like a disgust you felt at the reaction that a lot of people had to No Logo. And that really pushed you to kind of not get locked into a kind of typecast author, someone who just writes about one subject, you know, you are really and, and always have been looking to make a broader argument about the social and structural forces that subject us to organized abandonment, which demand constant growth, even if the cost is like a burning planet, you know, and you take your analysis beyond the arena of sort of the growing trend towards a corporate self. That's, that's sort of your original work in No Logo. And, and it moves through a lot of different arenas sort of using the same lens, always trying to sort of get into the heart of sort of like what is um, in terms of like how power is constructed, a theory of power, a theory of politics. And the most recent book, you're pivoting some of your analysis to COVID. And COVID is something that we cover quite frequently here on Death Panel. Um, We've been documenting the pandemic, the sociological production of an end to the pandemic, which has been imposed despite the fact that the pandemic, of course, rages on. And that was imposed not just by MAGA conservatives, but by Democrats and liberals. And even many on the left. And truth be told, as a left podcast, we are quite lonely in our focus on COVID. Um, Many of the left have either failed to rise to the challenges or opportunities that COVID offers. So many of the left have, as the pandemic has gone on, really looked the other way. Some of them right away, some of them as it dragged out, and some when liberals told them it was time to be vaxxed and relaxed. And you know, I'm not saying left at large, I'm talking more about like the big names and voices on the left. I think a lot of folks doing organizing work, mutual aid work, they're all very focused on COVID because it's continuing to disrupt movement work make it more dangerous, make it more difficult. But the tangible material concern with COVID is missing from a lot of the analysis of folks doing like left knowledge production. And so it was such a interesting and, and great sense of relief to in some ways see that you, a, a very sort of hegemonic left, Figure such as you are, which I say in a tug and cheek way, but like, let's be real, it's true. It was really nice to see you focus on COVID, and I was hoping you could start us off by talking about, you know, why you continued to focus on it even as many shifted their focus away.
0: Hmm. Well, listening to you, I, I, I guess I, I think the book is about COVID, and it's also like COVID as a material reality on actual bodies and social relationships. And it's also about the way a pandemic changed the culture. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I think there is such a, there's a weird kind of, I don't know, it's almost like a shame or something where people are almost embarrassed to look at the way they behaved in the early, in the, in the, in the like, I mean, there's all these different phases, as you know, because you've been tracking it so closely, but as a, person of the left, whether you want to call me hegemonic (laughs) or not. Um, you know, I, I'm always interested when people self-organize and when people are interested in working class people who they have, um, systematically averted their eyes from. And, you know, that those moments where, um, where there was a it, it, where you know d- disasters very often act as unveilings, right? I mean, this is I think this is true of like hurricanes and you know it's it's a phrase that often comes up, you know, uh, disasters as unveilings. That, um, where it's not that it creates the disaster, yes, there's some of that, but it also unveils preexisting disasters, and I think that that was very very much true around COVID, and that's why I think it's interesting that there's such a rush to to not look at at that, or almost like an embarrassment about that early phase, you know, um, the clapping for healthcare workers phase. Um, so yeah, so I think that, that I want to look back at it. (laughs) You know, I want to look at what was going on. I want to look at the backlash to it. I want to look at the, you know, the, the, the momentum of quote unquote normal, but I don't think we have returned to quote unquote normal. I believe Mm -hmm. we are changed. Right. And so I think that, you know, part of what I'm trying to do with the book is, offer a few you know rough draft sketches of ways in which we've been changed by covid um recognizing that we're still in it um and so you know that image of i don't know how you feel about about Arundhati Roy's image of the pandemic as a portal but you know if you go back and read that piece it's interesting because uh, some people remember it as more optimistic than it was, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. like, um, mm-hmm. I mean, Arndadi is a friend of mine and she's not optimistic. You know? yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, she, she, she's, she, she's got her eyes pretty wide open. You know, she's in India, which is like flipping fascist hard. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, she said there was a choice point about what we bring with us. And one choice was um, a choice to change and a choice to kind of travel more lightly through the portal and leave some of the worst of ourselves behind. Or we bring it with us and we go somewhere really, really monstrous. And I think, I think we chose the last, you know, and I think mm. we have to look at that because it's not just back to the old normal. It's like, it it's worse. Like I, I you know, <laughs> a, 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 and, um, yeah. you know, there's something else that Arundhati has been saying about India, you know, that, that, that it, there's no, you know, she's used this image that there's no going back to the old shore, like we are at sea mm. and we have to find another shore. And that's another, that's where I, th- I think we have to be honest that that's, that like before we're going to find the other shore, we have to admit we're at sea, like we're not. Mm. And so um, that's what I'm trying, trying to get at with this. And and it's a very, very hard thing to look at uh, directly. I think it is a true hyper object to use mm. um, Timothy Morton's yeah. phrase. And so, you know, one way to tame a hyper object is to Shrink it down to human size, and that's where doppelgangers come in. I mean, there.
2: I, I shared that sort of feeling that you know, reading reading through the book. Like one reason it felt so compelling is I think you channel or sort of write in great detail and with great honesty and complexity just about the the quality of feelings of of, <laughs> of the past few years, um, and and perhaps one of the sort of experiential phenomenon of this era we're living in is this sort of doppelganger effect, this doubling, um, this production of strange mirror images, opposites, people um, feeling haunted by other versions of themselves, other people who reflect strange things back to them. And I think there's something so interesting kind of moving through that process and and the way that you narrate it and then coming through you know, towards the end, kind of thinking about what you were just describing, um, the need to kind of have a reckoning first uh, in order to kind of get some critical perspective on what's so hard about building this kind of shared political horizon that we might need to meet the challenges of the moment. Um, But I was sort of curious if like for you, does that, does that have, I mean, something that we, I know B and I have talked a lot about um, is thinking about the sort of political depression um, mm. that that mm-hmm. various that has registered in various different ways for different groups of people over different time spans, right? I feel like the concept of left nostalgia. You know, as someone who also is from Canada and, and grew up organizing in NDP circles, you know, I like experienced left nostalgia in reference to this sort of fantasy version of the '60s and the '70s. I wasn't personally um, there to witness. Um, but, But that there is something, I mean, I wonder if there's something that you're sort of getting into here that operates both kind of like a left nostalgia, the desire to get back to a, a kind of uh, normal, a rational normal, some sort of imagined pre-pandemic, or so often mm-hmm. it's like some sort of pre-MAGA moment where- Exactly,
0: yeah, it's not just pre, trump Pre-Trump, right,
2: like, oh yeah. yes, when well, the public sphere was rational and, and, mm-hmm. and everything was democratic, it's like, wait, hold on, what, when, when was that <laughs> ever the case, right? And, um, and I, I just sort of, yeah, Curious if if part of what you're wrestling with or if you could talk a little bit about is the sort of, I don't know what, uh, Well, I'll just let you say it because you could say it better than I could, but something about sort of the stubbornness of the kind of like aesthetics or feelings or rhetoric of liberalism in the Mm. face of not just the, you know, unmitigated chaos um, of the climate catastrophe or, you know, record wealth inequality or the pandemic, but also, you know, liberalism's defensiveness about acknowledging its own long-term symbiotic relationship to fascism, right? And wanting to see the rise of Trump or, you know, events that have taken place in the last few years as, magically, exceptionally disruptive and coming out of nowhere, um, so that there is a path to get back to, as opposed to part of a more difficult history that, you know, let's say North American or, you know, Anglo-European cultures have been sort of, you know, trying to avoid taking a, a deep look at for a long time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so well said. And, you know, I, this book is hard to describe, right? So I don't know <laughs> if you're going to try to describe it or whether we should, <laughs> I, I should try. And, and unlike, you know, I, the, all, all, all the previous books I've written and it was Beatrice listed, you know, I, it was so easy to be like, this book is about X, you know? Oh, right. Um, this one is, is, is a lot trickier. You know, it isn't a a sort of a thesis based uh, project where it's like, I'm making an argument and I'm marshalling all the facts and, and, you know, we're going to climb up this very steep mountain and we're going to get there together. It's, it's much windier than that. Mm -hmm. I do hope that it's more enjoyable for it. Like I, I wanted to, have fun with the writing Mm. in a way that I hadn't since my first book, you know, (laughs) like, like no logo. I wrote when I was in my twenties and nobody knew who I was and I was very free to have fun and, Mm. and, and kind of play with my own complicity in the culture, you know, in in the culture that I was writing about and, you know, wrote it as a, like, I think I called it a mall rat memoir. Um, (laughs) but you know, it, also wanting it to be an anti-corporate manifesto, you know, but from the inside, not from the outside, not shaking my finger from the outside, you know, and I think what I found exciting and, and, and you know, you mentioned sort of left nostalgia, you know, I don't, I don't think I'm, you know, I don't feel nostalgic I mean, that's not entirely true. I have moments of nostalgia for, for, for <laughs> high points of political activism. Um, I've had to reassess my memories of the 90s a little bit around Sinead O'Connor's um death, where I'm like, it wasn't all bad. There were there were <laughs> um, but certainly the way the way Sinead was treated was was horrific. But where am I going with this? I think it's more like the way I see this book is more in the tradition of left melancholy than nostalgia, right? Mm-hmm. Where there mm-hmm. is a tradition of left writing in moments of just dis- political disappointments. And um, Sarah Marcuse just wrote a, a great book called Political Disappointments on this. Um, and, you know, if you think about, you know, I, I quote Stuart Hall writing in the Thatcher era, you know, about that sort of a ghostly left. Um, and I came I came of age in a moment of left retreat, you know, left defeat. And I think there is this real reluctance in a sort of this stage of capitalism and where left politics itself is so at the speed of social media to pick up that tradition and actually say we're not where we want to be. And how did we end up here? And mm-hmm. and to write in a different kind of register that is not triumphant, not just rallying the troops, but it's like, if we want to be somewhere better, we really have to be more reflective, right? And that I think requires, once again, writing from the inside, not the outside, which is why this book is, you know, quite self-critical. Um, and, but I wasn't, you know, I was not, I did not have it in me in 2021 and 2022 to write a rallying book, you know, I was too disappointed, you know, of seeing another political opening slip away, you know, uh, after the racial justice uprising and those sort of early tender months of, oh, we see each other, we're going to care for each other. And then maybe not, you know, maybe we won't, you know. Um, And so, yeah, like, I mean, it wasn't like I had, it was making a choice between writing a more kind of rallying traditional political text and writing this stranger text. It was like writing this or not writing at all, you know, and, and just like (laughs) hiding under the covers, you know, and I, and I kind of wrote my way back into a place where I feel of some, that feels like a little bit of stability. Um, but I was, I was certainly feeling very unstable. And it struck me that the figure of the doppelganger was really rich to explore, right? Um, because it is all about vertigo um and instability and and not knowing exactly what's real and who can be trusted or if even the self is real. And the thing about doppelganger books, you know, coming back to what you said, Jules, about liberalism is You know, I do see this, don't tell anyone, but like a bit of a Trojan horse book for liberals Mm. (laughs) where (laughs) it starts off being like, oh, yes, we're going to make fun of Steve Bannon and Naomi Wolf and all the all the all the thems, the bad people. And then like (laughs) and then it kind of flips, doesn't it? Uh And we end up in Palestine and it's not where they thought, you know, it's not it's not where I I hope I don't think it's where a lot of liberal readers think it's going to end up. Um, it ends up as all doppelgangers books do, which is with a mirror, you know, and, and you know, I think the, the mirror, I see my own doppelganger as a as a mirror that's shown me some things I don't like about myself. And I think this book might show, show some liberals, some things they don't like about themselves, the ones who keep reading into the Israel chapter, at least.
1: Mm. Well, and I mean, part of what The book's pointing to it. (laughs) I was saying to to people that in a way it's actually kind of disorienting, right? Because you start and you're like, okay, the book's about this. And then as you proceed, like every chapter, you sort of revise your expectation for like where the end point of the book is. And you like keep revising it as you go. And, you know, I think the sort of Trojan horse aspect, like, The attempt to kind of like destroy your brand to question the self, but also like question the value of sort of sitting around and wondering why, quote unquote, bad people do bad things, which has been a huge part of the narrative of COVID that we've been pushing back on is kind of the idea that like... But for better
0: personalities
1: and better politics and the positions of power, like we would be experiencing a completely different pandemic. And, right. um, you know, we the
0: good people waited in at least another four months before we did the same thing. <laughs> right. Yes.
1: Right. Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh, painful. Right. You know, it's it's um, it, it sort of reminded me a little bit of like the kind of lesser known Brecht poem that people tend to quote, the one that's like, you know, we know what makes us ill, which is like the sort of letter to the doctors and nurses. But it really made me think of this other poem in that series, which is The Sick Communists' Answer to the Comrades. Um, Mm. And in that one, um, he says, uh, well, I could just read it. Comrades by hunger, poor housing, and inadequate clothing. I was made sick, removed from your ranks. I immediately took up the struggle for my recovery. I declare to everyone who sees me the cause of my sickness. I explicitly name the guilty ones. At the same time, I wage the struggle against the sickness funds who seek to cheat me at every little turn. I wage the struggle from my sick bed. I've informed myself about the liabilities of the hospital, the daily abuses committed against sick members of the oppressed class. I apply every resource which will help me recover my good health. And so although stricken and wounded, I have not left your ranks. I will stick with you until my last breath. I have no thought of yielding. I beg you continue to depend on me.
2: Mm.
1: And I I feel like um, part of the reason this really stuck in my head is obviously this book is like a lot more personal, a lot more vulnerable, sort of starts from this place of looking at the phenomena of you being confused with Naomi Wolf, who's sort of one of the more well-known like liberals who completely went sort of full eugenics in COVID. You know, um, the traces were there in, in her work, as you talk about. And sort of from there, obviously, you move very far away from that towards a kind of um, reckoning also with, with not just like sort of what is COVID producing in the world, but how Does COVID kind of show us the lack of like a shared consensus reality of like a shared Mm -hmm. political horizon or? you know, cultural imaginary. And I I feel like one thing that I've really come into throughout the course of COVID is to really feel that in a way that I kind of knew was possible, you know? (laughs) But um, I think that, Mm -hmm. you know, in the decades prior, it was easier to sort of trick yourself into thinking that everybody was on the same page. And, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of as you you go through this, a lot of the book you're talking about, you know, um, (laughs) some of the kind of painful research that we do, you know, listening to people like Bannon, and Wolf and and all the sort of like folks on that spectrum talk about COVID, leverage COVID. But also like you talk about your fascination with how they're sort of honing their messaging, what they're taking advantage of and how they're actually painting this picture of a kind of shared political horizon. And so I wonder if you could talk a little bit about sort of how you feel like some of that lack of, um, you know, even when we say the left, right, like it's a terrible mm-hmm. catch all term, because what the what the fuck does that mean? Right? It just is like a meaningless umbrella term. So, you know, I, I wonder if you could just speak about sort of how that kind of lack of of a shared consensus of a shared political horizon you feel like has factored into some of the ways that we've seen Covid play out,
0: hmm. yeah. um I'm just i'm I'm pausing over whether they do have a shared political horizon beyond power, you know? Um, like I think Bannon. everything he does is, is about, as he says, taking back power for a hundred years. Um, and I think he does have some things he believes in and they're terrifying. Um, but then he also just appropriates issues that have some juice that he thinks are going to help him get back into power, um, or help Trump get back into power and hopefully he'll will have ingratiated himself enough that he'll be able to get back in as well and and that's his skill as a strategist right he did that in 2016 with you know workers who felt abandoned by the Democratic Party and he is now doing it with women who he understands are a big problem particularly white women who got all worked up over vaccines and masks during covid and and have been pivoting to, uh, you know, so-called critical race theory and trans rights and, um, you know, kind of trying to do a Bolsonaro electoral Bolsonaro on that. Um, so I don't know whether he has, a whether there's a shared political horizon there exactly. I think that there are shared interests in the sense that, you know, he, he offers a platform, he offers, um, a sense of community, belonging. I don't know how much time they spend mapping out the world they're going to build because maybe because a lot of it is unspeakable. Um mm-hmm. but I get, but where I, what I would say is that you know I mentioned having <laughs> grown up in a you know come of age in a in, in a bleaker political period in lots of ways, right, where the left was smaller and more marginal um in, in the 90s and 80s and I would say that that the that the effect of of anti-communism mccarthyism um the reagan thatcher kind of there is no alternative being the air that we were breathing at that time was that it was to the extent that there was a left it was basically saying, stop it, stop hurting us. You know, um, it was, it was, a, it was a left of no, like, no, stop the cuts. That was the, that was the, mm-hmm. the, the rallying cry of the nineties, you know, um, and very nostalgic in terms of what Jules was talking about, of like a sort of a bygone, you know, welfare state. Um And I do, so I would just say, you know, putting on my cheerleader um, hat on just like, like very lightly, I would say um, that there has been some progress on shared horizon, like from my perspective in terms of how bad things used to be, um, because it was, it was nearly impossible to say what you were for in the nineties. Nobody wanted to be a socialist. Nobody would write a book, you know, with the word communism in the title. (laughs) Beatrice, like, you know, I used to have to- People are still scandalized. <laughs> <laughs> I mean that just makes me laugh at how hard I had to fight to get mm. capitalism in any of my subtitles. You know, oh, wow. I um, bet I, I can imagine. So it's it's um and and then you know I've been a part of a shift in movements towards a yes. You know, um, uh, uh, whether that you know in Canada we had a, a coalition come together around something that we called the Leap Manifesto, which was about the climate crisis, but it was also about indigenous rights. It was also um, about racial justice. It was, you know, it was, it was a coalition. It was, it was an attempt at a coalition of the yes that, you know, that brought that, that brought together a cross-section and then, you know, the Green New Deal and then the Black, Red and Green New Deal. And then those sort of early attempts in the first few months of COVID to think about what a people's response to the pandemic might be that would that would really embody and absorb that convergence of a pandemic climate crisis racial justice reckoning like what what is the yes that comes out of that and there were some attempts and this is i think the heartbreak of 2021 like the reason why i did not know mm-hmm. know what to say is that those coalitions fell apart like let's be honest right yeah. it's not that we didn't try right and so So what happened with that? Right. And that, you know, and and that I think is partly what motivated me to want to come back to these themes around personal branding and, and like the way capitalism has infiltrated our movements and the way funding and, you know, affects the ability to work in coalition and the way identity politics impacts it, you know, the not, you know, and I'm I'm not anti-identity politics, but I think there are different versions of it. Right. And as LFMI Taiwu says, like there's some that are a bridge and there's some that are a wall. Right. And so yeah, I think the picture is a little more complicated than than that we don't have a horizon. It's that we I would say it's trickier. It's that we we we've we learned to talk a good game around what we want. But we don't know how to embody those values, right? Like you can, you know, the Leap Manifesto. The it was a, you know, the subtitle was you know, a Canada based on caring for the planet and each other. But do we know how to act like we care for each other, right? And that's the theme of what you, you know, what you talk about all the time, right? Mm. So I think it's it's less ideological than it is. You know, I have I think a line in the book where it's not that we don't know, it's that we don't know how to know. Mm. Um, And we don't know how to act based on these things that we say we believe in, because that's how deep Mm -hmm. capitalism is in in all of us. Right. Uh, I mean, is that fair?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that there is also a kind of, you know, the Brecht Brecht poem kept coming to mind because, you know, sort of throughout the book, you know, there is like the theme of sort of like as as like the kind of COVID despair continues to layer as like the abandonment layers there's a kind of feeling of like okay like part of what we're actually sort of seeing is that maybe sick people aren't a part of the shared horizon that we've all been Mm -hmm. talking about right and and that maybe you know kind of part of what's going on is like you know it's not just like a failure of our movements but it's like um (laughs) <laughs> insidious, uh, you know, the values and and sort of myths that we live with every day that are sort of more powerful shared totems or, um, you know, touch points than some of these horizons. Um, you know, as we've seen, mm-hmm. like, these aren't new things. These are, you know, ideas about Independence and autonomy and self worth through proving yourself through bodily improvement, all these kinds of like figures that you touch on in the book, whether it's like random yoga moms in Canada being like, we want them to die uh, (laughs) when pointed out that vaccination like protects not just you, but vulnerable people, you know, but this kind of idea of like that we've seen pop throughout the pandemic that like, Suddenly now the left doesn't care about sick people. But if you, you know, look back at the Brecht poem that I was reading, you know, he's like, please continue to depend on me. Like, I haven't gone anywhere. I'm here. I Mm -hmm. might be working from my bed. Like, I'm here and I'm for it until the last breath. But like, you Mm -hmm. have to, you know, I'm begging you to continue to, like, incorporate me existing sort of in Our shared political reality. And I think part of, you know, what you seem to be sort of attempting to grapple with in in the book is sort of like, well, you know, how do we sort of move forward knowing that um, we're reckoning with these types of layered abandonment and that the pandemic is sort of accelerating that? But, you know, that this also plays into a kind of larger um, broader narrative that has way more to do with a kind of broader fascist turn than it does with any sort of one particular, uh, political movement.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and it's why, you know, I ended, ended the book with, with Sonora Taylor's Age of Disability because, you know, the message is so powerful and it's being extended into a book, which I think, um, you might really enjoy. Uh, do, do you, know the essay that it's that Sonora Taylor's essay? Yes. Um, yeah. It, I, I, I mean, I, it's, it, I, for those for listeners who aren't are familiar with it, um, Sonora Taylor, have you had Sonora Taylor on the show?
1: No, we haven't. We've had Astra. Um, but we had it's never worked out scheduling wise <laughs> with, with Sonora.
0: I, I want to bring the Taylor sisters into, to, to the university where I work uh, They're, they're pretty amazing, uh, um, uh, team, but, uh, but, but Sonara is a you know, disability theorist and writes about ecology and writes about the parallels between disabled bodies and a disabled planet and and looks at the ecological crisis as a, as planetary impairment and makes a forceful argument that the that, that the disability justice movement doesn't just need to be included but has a huge amount to teach about what it means to live on an impaired planet um and it is a it's a different kind of horizon and, it, and and i think you're right that to to push that it isn't it isn't just that it's that the horizon is already there and everybody understands this i don't i think you're right i think this is this is um this is work that needs to happen and exciting work i think
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah no i I agree. It should be exciting, right? And there's something about like the process of, of collaborating to rediscover what feels good about pushing our thinking and pushing our, you know, pushing our, you know, collective capacities uh, that really kind of comes through. And I think some of the, I'm a historian, so I can't help but think in long-term skills um, for better or for worse. But, (laughs) you know, I appreciate both how you pay attention to the really deep roots of certain logics and historical processes that, in fact, aren't novel—you know—to the last ten years, or even say, to the era of neoliberal capitalism, right? You 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 go deep on the history of eugenics, the history of settler colonialism and colonial expropriation, uh, and help us see some of those deep roots. And and then it's almost like you know, if there's some sort of sedimentary rock metaphor that works here or not, that the topsoil is is, you know, some of these formal changes in the way we live and particularly the way that social media and sort of production of a digital economy and digital selves and the political sphere's realignment around those dynamics creates, you know, a number of effects, but maybe one of them is a difficulty with sort of looking at, you know, what sits beneath uh, and this feeling of fundamental rupture, Mm -hmm. but also this kind of feeling of, yeah. Loss of imagination, but uh, uh, there's a, I think a really, you know, poignant and and for me really moving section of the book where you talk about and develop sort of the feeling of speechlessness uh, that, that I think has, you know, in various forms often feels very individualizing and isolating and maybe hit a kind of intense peak. Uh, it, uh, yeah. For me, it would be 2021 as well. Um, <laughs> but, you know, this sort of the way that the kind of diagonalism, um, as you put it, this sort of post-partisan rhetoric that, you know, not coincidentally tends to collect around people who espouse fairly far right views, but present themselves, you know, as, um, as renegades and, and as always (laughs) subject to being canceled and as victims and as, you know, really the only ones who see things truly that there is a way that that sort of, um, diagonalism and, uh, it's sort of reduction of everything to mockery, turning everything into bombastic, uh, just completely, you know, unbelievable conspiracies, you know, there's a way that that has a tactical function, which is it just devalues uh, everything and everyone around, you know, those forms of speech. And so, you know, Mm -hmm. if you find yourself... Um, you know, on the other side of that or facing that down, it becomes hard to say anything in response because you yourself are devalued and your own sort of relationship to meaning and to language, you know, is sort of degraded along with it. Um, But 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 I think what's sort of interesting is you're really wrestling with, and I think sort of, you know, Laying out this challenge, that then our task is not to regain a kind of haughty, you know, holier than thou. Well, you know, thank thank goodness I'm not that illogical and ridiculous, <laughs> and I really, I really am reasonable, and I really do see things true, you know. But actually, to think, you know, through what what it would take to break out of that that vertigo or isolation, and maybe what that is is, of course, to to come together with other people. Um, But but kind of also maybe moving from, uh, yeah, an individual to a more collective imagination. And and I just, I don't know, I mean, maybe for me, this really resonates because in my day job, I'm a professor and I write a lot of single authored things and Mm -hmm. have also felt just sort of humiliated um, by my own, like, relationship to language in the last few years, particularly as a, you know, trans woman of color who does work in the public sphere where I'm like, I don't want to talk, but I also, you know, (laughs) feel that sense (laughs) of, like, cheapening. Um, But that has, you know, really the thing that has helped counter man and transform that experience of humiliation for me has been something like death panel coming together with other people, um, and, and experiencing that, that relief of, you know, of, of enmeshment and also of scaling beyond myself, um, so that I can't fantasize anymore that my brain is going to develop any solutions to (laughs) anything by itself. And like, even if it did, what on earth am I going to do about that (laughs) all by myself? Um, anyways, that was a I don't, I don't think I'm really arriving at a question here, but, um,
0: you know, <laughs> well, I mean, of, I don't, I, want one, one thing yeah. that makes me think about is, um, I, I don't know, I, I don't know what your, both of your relationship to the Bernie campaign was, but I do feel that for people who are very involved in that campaign and had hope, you know, some mm-hmm. hopes heavily invested in it, there were, there is a particular experience of the pandemic, um, hmm. and that and and the, and the the political disappointments, um, and, and that you know there were a few high points, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so when when we talk about feeling speechless and we talk about not knowing what to do, I mean part of it is that we were doing some things, right? I mean I'm talking for myself, mm-hmm. like you know I was on the road with Bernie, I you know I was I I was I was you know kind of a his like one of his climate surrogates, um, and you know, that's what I was doing right when everything shut down, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so the, the, the experience mm-hmm. of those early days, it was really days, you know, of, of, I mean, the last thing I did was go on, Amy, go on Democracy Now! and, mm-hmm. you know, try to spin Super Tuesday as not a defeat for Bernie, which it obviously was, <laughs> you know? right. um, But, like, I think there's there was something about the kind of high of the Bernie campaign Mhm that feeling of usness that feeling of being free of me you know of like oh wow uh, like I get to not have to just be me you know I get to be part of this just like surging humanity of usness right which which one did feel in those huge stadiums and and then just being dropped into home screen biden you know like <laughs> uh, th- 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 like that was a v- and then suddenly so many folks from the campaign suddenly just attacking each other and just like everybody just proving they existed by posting a ton and you know and 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 that it was it was whiplash like that was a lot um and i i don't think you know just just coming back to what i was saying earlier like we don't look back very well you know uh, uh these days and and it is worth doing uh, to sort of understand how we could have gotten to such a bleak moment, um, you know, the twenty twenty spring of twenty twenty was the largest protests in U- U.S. history. We think, right? Um, like that's a pr- that's pretty far to fall, right? Like that's a lot. Um, anyway, that that's what it, it reminded me of. Jules just just that that feeling yeah. of loneliness and sort mm-hmm. of like suddenly you're just one person posting. After that, you know, that <laughs> like we 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 tasted something else.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, that was a very, that was a very strange. It's a very, uh, it's weird to think back to those early months of the pandemic. It can be really stomach turning to look back at our work from 2020, um, especially, you know, talking about stuff like, okay, yeah, we've got these pandemic programs and they all have these arbitrary sundown dates. So how is this going to work if the pandemic continues? If it's just like, this program ends on this day in 2 years, right? You know, we we were we were talking about this, we were tracking this. But, mm-hmm. you know, there was a moment where we were writing a pandemic policy pro- proposal. You know, we were talking about mm-hmm. ideas for ways that you could completely change Medicaid. You could just shift all the FMAP funding to federal funding. You know, we'd been doing all this work around Medicare for all talking about like, you know, the ways that actually Sanders was kind of putting together an interesting disability platform with uh, the recognition of like the Olmstead Act. And that was like an (laughs) unwelcome take in the disability sort of. Uh, online community that existed back then. I was a bit of a pariah. I remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. People really not open to to Medicare for all at all. Um, But it is difficult to sort of wrestle back with like how many sort of offhand comments came true and how many sort of predictions were, you know, not worse than we were hoping that were actually exactly on point. I'm thinking back to like the episode we did with the Dia Benton you know who's a great anthropologist based out of chicago and she actually does a lot of stuff sort of looking at media and sports actually and she's she and she, she and i were talking we were talking about this interview she did in 2020 and she said i think it was to MedPage today she was like we'll get our sports back when we earn it and she was like boy was i fucking wrong you know like we just went right <laughs> in and we put all of the, you know we've so many athletes have been put at Incredible risk. You know, there's all these sort of ways that um looking away is sort of accelerating a lot of the dynamics that we've always been organizing against and sort of working on building like a political education program around here on the show. But you know, it's been tremendous, like just to see sort of how a lot of those folks who who checked out in 2020, they have come back ultimately. And there is a kind of like okay, we're living with this. Okay, like I've got to start working on this stuff again. You know, I, I've sort of taken two years to sort of recover from the political depression of sort of what happened with the campaign. And we, we really tried not to miss a beat, but it was a moment of sort of feeling like, you know, I think the floor fell out of a lot of things and a lot of people just sort of pivoted to like, oh, I'm just going to talk about movies on our podcast now. We're like, <laughs> I think like Chapo Trap House, like read a list of like the top 20 Uh, cutest animals or something like that on an episode in the middle of like the early throes of COVID and the protests that were going on. And, you know, the, I remember, (laughs) you know, it was like a moment where we were like, wait, really? Like (laughs) why this is like, (sighs) well, we've all been talking about already for months and it felt so strange to
0: sort of talk about not being capable of introspection.
1: (laughs) I mean, (sighs) yeah, it's, and it's it's something that I know that you know sometimes folks are frustrated, like why is death panel the only one? And we're like, believe us, we don't want to be <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but I do think there is a kind of tendency to put a lot of hope in in small things, um, in things that can be seen as these big transformative moments and. I think a lot of people really thought about the fight for Medicare for all in terms of what they were going to get, even though part of the message was not me and us. I think a lot Mm -hmm. of it was there was this real intense desire to be freed from the extraction and pain of fucking health insurance that really was powerful. And I think that when that was taken away a lot of people just sort of felt like, well, okay, fuck it. And I think like Medicare for all actually being a big part of those two election cycles, you know, this incredible defeat as we go into COVID, I think that the the sort of taking that off the table and having to deal with that as a kind of painful thing for a lot of people kind of actually pushed the COVID denial and accelerated it a bit on the left because it became a kind of like, well, you know, there's this nihilistic way of thinking about about bodily autonomy where it's every man for themselves. And it's all about mm-hmm. kind of, you know, taking care of yourself first and, you know, doing things that um, are really oriented around like a individualist view of politics. And I think that's been sort of like a huge, um, stumbling point that, that ultimately (laughs) is something that we're still all working through.
0: I think so. And I think this, you know, the, the, this is, you know, I think there's some shame and disgust around, you know, when you go really hard after the them, you know, they are the people who don't care about the immunocompromised. They are the people who only care about themselves. and you know, it's, it, it's a little bit similar to what has happened with, um, you know, immigration, like when Trump was in power, everybody cared about the kids at the border, you know, and now that it's Biden, it's like you, it's not that you don't care. You can't even look at it because it's too embarrassing. Like the hypocrisy of it is too embarrassing. Um, mm. and I think that there's something similar around, around COVID and disability where it, it's, it, it, it it becomes, it becomes shameful, um, and you almost lose ground. I hope, I hope that's not true. Like, I hope it's possible (laughs) to get back some of that. I mean, I'm always gonna, uh, you know, I, I, still think there is something, and this is why, you know, coming back to what I was saying earlier around, I'm worried that people want to forget about Mm -hmm. some of the good stuff that happened in the early months. Mm. I want us to remember it, you know, um, because there is, there's a body memory of of, of other kinds of values governing a society. It was not perfect, but it was better than what we've got now. And it was better than what was before. And a whole lot of people who were systematically invisibilized were visible. For a little while, not long enough, you know? Um, and I, I worry about it just kind of being memory hold, you know? So, yeah. um, yeah, you know, and I think, you know, some of what I write about, about the backlash, right? Like, like the trucker convoy and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. this, like it's, it, it's, you know, I, I really think part of it was just like, this shock of like, you can't ask me to care about other people when you've told me my whole life that my job is to just care about myself and my family and mm-hmm. play by these rules. And if I get myself a little business and succeed, you know, how dare you tell me I, I have to compromise that or or suddenly change the rules. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, And, and, you know, so one way of looking at it, that is, oh, those terrible people, you know, right? Um, but they weren't everyone, you know, they weren't even the majority. Um, For a while, they were a minority. And so there's something interesting. And you can tell me if you think I'm trying to be too rosy, like Bernie after Super Tuesday, because I can do that. Um, (laughs) But, (laughs) um, you know, there's something in the fact that that despite growing up in this hyper-capitalist, hyper-individualistic culture, a critical mass of people welcomed interconnection, mm. welcomed, yeah. um, you know, being part of 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 a of a web of humanity and other than human world, and and wanted something else and 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 we don't have a political project that builds on that but there's that still was something and i i don't like just saying it was nothing it was a flash in the pan it didn't mm-hmm. represent anything you know and like this this once again is what's interesting to me about you know the figure of the doppelganger right like it stands in for the multiplicity of the self right like we are not one thing we're a mess we're all like humans are <laughs> are capable of incredible selfishness and cruelty and compassion and beauty and you know, different systems light up different parts of ourselves, right? And different moments light up different parts of ourselves, and and you know, and that's like as a Canadian, um, you know, who you know, my parents are American. We moved to Canada because my father was a uh, you know a war de- he's a deserter from the U.S. military because he didn't want to go to Vietnam. Um, but I always say, you know, we left because of the war, but we stayed because of the universal public health care. Um, <laughs> yeah. and you know, the way the right derides public healthcare diminished as it is in Canada is always by like presenting it as this, you you know, bureaucracy, big government, blah, blah, blah. But actually it's a manifestation of values, right? And it's it's an expression of a belief system um, about the value of every single person Mm -hmm. Um, and the belief that you shouldn't have to you know, on top of the pain of being sick, you should also not have to go bankrupt. Um, in fact, you shouldn't have to pay anything, you know, and I've experienced that in my own family. I wrote in the book about, you know, my mom having, you know, two catastrophic strokes when I was a teenager, um, or one you know, one lesser stroke and a second catastrophic stroke. Um, it turned out to have been because she had a, um, a, a, a vascular malformation in her, in her brainstem that she did know she'd had her whole life that bled. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, she was hospitalized for, and, uh, you know, for probably, a year and a half, you know, counting rehab, Mm -hmm. um, maybe more. I think we got a bill for $20 for crutches. She was medevaced. She had, you know, she had, you know, (laughs) day long surgery. Um, you know, it really does make a difference and it really is an expression of value. So, uh, just being like this kind of, I have literally have dual citizenship, and my, you know, I've lived in both countries, and my, and I have this strange kind of cross border reality, um, because th- my whole extended family is in the states, but my immediate family is here, and you know, my father works in healthcare, and we've had a lot of experiences with the healthcare system, uh, uh, which doesn't make us exceptional, um, and but it's a big difference you know and the difference is not just like experiential it's a value, it, it 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 it's fundamental you know to to say you're not going to have to worry about this it you know if if catastrophic illness strikes um it's an expression of care right um and 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 it's it being it's under attack uh uh completely And Canada, you know i've mm-hmm. i've also, also experienced a lot of uncare in this system as the parent of a child with a disability, and, you know s- lost all my Canadian smugness because actually can't the Canadian public school system is worse than the American school system in a lot of cases when it comes to to kids with disabilities. Um but yeah, mm. I think these are these are these are systems that express values and mm-hmm. a, and it's important to anyway, that's the way I see it, yeah, no.
2: well, and I wonder if part of the riddle, I mean, I just feel like you work really really effectively with contradiction in this book. Um, and I wonder if if and just in listening to our conversation, you know, one thing it has me thinking is is about proximity, missed chances, these feel kind of mm-hmm. doppelganger-esque sort of mm-hmm. motifs, but um, you know, the the strange proximity of okay, some of perhaps the largest single protest movement in US history in the summer of 2020, you know, a very large political movement mobilized um, in part, you know, for Medicare for all, and then the, the, the deep fallout, um, or the, you know, the deep, the deepening of, of a kind of ultra individualist kind of revanchist diagonalism that can join up, you know, very far right white supremacists with, Mm -hmm. um, people who are small, you know, might own a small gym and are into wellness culture and things like that. Um, but I, but I wonder if, you know, part of that, that kind of you know, the riddle here, right, is just sort of figuring out um, okay, well, you know, the right has come up with a kind of all-encompassing narrative, uh, whether it's sincerely held or not, um, to explain these things. But as you say, you know, it's it's it shouldn't really surprise us that, you know, four decades after Thatcher's saying there is no society, that like a, a global pandemic would engender this kind of, you know, intense austerity politics, uh, you know, this sort of intense uh, focus on the individual's uh, responsibility uh, to mm-hmm. protect their immune system. Mm-hmm and their family and, and you know, mm-hmm. this the ways that this is all converging with the climate crisis to mm-hmm. imagine, well, we will preserve our family or our homestead or what it, whatever it may be. You know, these are these are logics that have been incubating not just since the advent of neoliberalism, but in the case of the eugenic logics, you know, for, for centuries. And yet in spite of that, as you're just saying, there still remains widespread support uh, for a more collective, uh, you know, kind of uh, reimagination of the world that would ameliorate those Mm -hmm. things but Mm -hmm. it seems that that collective imagination you know is not you know, maybe it's being outflanked in local senses in the kind of corporate owned social media, you know, <laughs> dark body politics world we live in. But, but it seems like the bigger riddle, you know, part of what I'm hearing this conversation being about is sort of the riddle of the all, you know, the all in Medicare for all. Right. Like, mm-hmm. who, who is this collective? Mm-hmm. Um, because that's a really difficult question to face down and in in a weird way you know, the the sort of right-wing conspiracy theory has some answers, right? The all is actually just a series of individuals who are under attack from strange impersonal forces and you have to securitize them and save them because you know your mm-hmm. cause is righteous or you're just scared or whatever. Um, but but the kind of broader question for the left, right? Well, who is this all, right? And there are mm-hmm. divisions and there are disagreements, um, but yeah. to build a collaborative, you know, complex, you know, intramurally different sense of all yeah, that's gonna that's gonna take some real mm-hmm. taking stock of where we've traveled. Not just in the last couple of years, but definitely yes, since the '60s and the '70s, but even since way earlier than that, right? And, and I, I'm just sort of curious, like. To, to baby steer us a little in that direction. But does that does that feel like part of what the task ahead is or this task of coming through this painful, looking at where we have been, what we have not wanted to mm-hmm. admit or the shame or the pain of, of, of what has happened in the past few years. Um, you know, to you, does that, that kind of moving through that lead towards this question of of the collective and the all? Um, and, and is that really the place where a shared political imagination is probably going to emerge or, or perhaps is emerging, is in many different places right now, but has yet to be given a sort of, um, yeah, just a bigger container or a bigger infrastructure mm-hmm. to to kind of hook up all of its various
0: components? Um I hope it's the latter. I, I mean I definitely think <laughs> yeah. there are some signs. And I think there are some spaces where we can we can we can we can point to examples of people building a, a sense of allness finding one another and learning to trust each other across some differences and, you know, in some tenant rights organizing, obviously in some, you know, exciting non-traditional labor organizing, Mm -hmm. um, you know, in, in the debt collective, speaking of Astra, (laughs) um, uh, you know, in the work that you're doing, absolutely. And I think what's, I don't know how to say this without sounding so corny, but you know, the thrill of organizing is Hmm. we sometimes find out that we actually like each other (laughs) and have fun. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) But I think that that's a big part of how you build an allness is that you actually kind of have to, you have to like each other to want to fight for each other right? Mm. On some level, you don't have to like everybody all the time, you know, Um, but there has to be a kind of a wellspring of affection. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm. And, 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 and I think that that's really just in practical terms been one of the hardest things that that's uh, to maintain because, you know, we, a lot of our social relations are, are devoid of the kind of interest interstitial ease of not task oriented, you know, this is a zoom meeting, we have an agenda, right? You know. Um like when we build trust is in the in between spaces often, right? Mm-hmm. Um it doesn't have to be in person, but it I think it does need to have a little of unstructuredness. Um mm. and um and and you know, and this is one of the parts of my research where I've been most chilled, where I have been hanging out in uh, uh, what I call the mirror world, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, following my doppelganger to places where, um, you know, I think some really nefarious political coalitions are being built. You know, where where what what chills me most is one when I hear them appropriating. Arguments that I know are powerful mm-hmm. that I believe the left has abandoned. Mm. Um, and the other is when I see them being nicer to each other than we are. <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, and even if, even if it's just a performed kind of, um, right. you know, performative, like we are the inclusion people, you know, we are the people who aren't, who don't, who don't cancel each other that Bannon does. Um there's still enough truth there, right. That, it that, you know, that I, I think we have like, like we need space, you know, I teach university students. I think, you know, Jules, you do too, you know, like it's important to have spaces where people feel like they can make mistakes, you know, that they're not mm-hmm. going to be attacked um, uh, uh, as they're learning. Right. And I think, I think we, and that's something like to build an allness, there has to be, there, there has to be some um, uh, just, just spaces where, we get to where it feels possible to to like each other. Yeah. I don't know if I, and I know that they're like coming back to those places where people are building that. I think, you know, that that's what organizing does as opposed to just, you know, saying what you believe or, mm-hmm. you know, or, or just, mm-hmm. in you know, just, just reacting. Um, when, when there's a clear goal and you know who you're up against and what you're up against and why you're doing what you're doing. And that can happen during a political campaign, but it can also happen during a unionizing drive. And it can also happen in a campaign to to cancel student debt. Um, there is a grace that is granted to one another that, and, and, and I think we, we really need that mm-hmm. I Need mean, more, 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 more places of grace. Yeah.
1: I mean, I appreciated the way you talked about sort of the embarrassment as a dynamic right and the distancing there rather than it being like about more personal, um, things. It's, it's, it's like someone's own deal if they've kind of separated themselves or looked away, you know, it's, Mm -hmm. um, it, it it reminds me, you know, some of the ways that I think a lot of people often have talked about, like the rise of like a kind of more open, obvious fascist political discourse has been, you know, like liberals like to use the metaphor of like boiling a frog, right? Like you're in a pot of water, the temperature is rising. And so you don't notice that you're being cooked to death, right? But I... I appreciated sort of how, you know, you didn't go there at all. You went a very different direction. And I feel like one thing, you know, in terms of the the embarrassment frame and the distancing and all of these sort of ways of of like how uh for for example, um, the sort of liberal take on COVID has been excruciating. Um, the ways that, you know, liberals have sort of turned themselves into like Individual liberals liberals will like self deputize themselves to be truth cops. Right. And it's like about, you know, fighting misinformation and disinformation in terms of, you know, imposing um, in a very condescending way, you know, this is the way to think about it. And one of the things you talk about is sort of like, you know, I think that we were too quick to you know, kind of like jump to things like pandemic of the unvaccinated, things like Macron saying, you know, people who mm-hmm. are unvaccinated are not full citizens of France, um, the kinds of ways that the the kind of um, mm-hmm. Abandonment was accelerated by a really sort of crass um, way of thinking about politics as a zero sum game of like how many of that side you can cross off the board, right? And vote counting and all that kind of bullshit. Yeah. And you know, as yeah. our as our um, colleague Phil Rocco likes to say, like you hold greater political value in, in agenda setting than you do in counting and collecting votes, right? You know, the the kind of. Yeah restriction of, of what's speech, of what's fighting back against misinformation. Um it's it's you know <laughs> it's embarrassing, right? The kind of like Glenn Klessler like popping out of the woodwork to say like, no, that child did not get an abortion because technically blah blah blah. Or like, <laughs> you know, yes, everybody wants Medicare for all, but the CBO said it's gonna be way too expensive. You know, it, it's they get really sort of liberals get worked up about fighting misinformation and warning people, don't be fooled. And while yeah. social reproduction obviously will lead to a lot of things that like from a strict standpoint, you could be like, yeah, that's like not true. That's bullshit. But it's bullshit that people really believe, like the people who complain about COVID precautions, you know, they truly believe that it's over um, and that the mm-hmm. pandemic's not a problem anymore. And I think, you know, you kind of get at the more important question, which is sort of like within that environment, how do we sort of find grounding? Right? I, I think there's this there's this idea that the artist and writer uh, Hito Styro writes about, um, you know, where she talks about in her essay called In Free Fall, she talks about like the idea that when you're falling, you you can't necessarily tell that you're falling. And part of that is because mm-hmm. you can't see the horizon. You can't see the ground. So, you know, the kind of inertia of falling can appear like perfect stasis. Uh, and she says like even if history and time have ended and you can't remember the time ever moved forward, you know, when whole societies around you might be falling just as you are, it can be kind of hard to see. And I I think, you know, part of what you really tried to do here and I appreciated like all the all of the sort of honesty about how covid kind of broke you a little bit because <laughs> To sort of pretend that it didn't, um, as you're saying, wouldn't really be a kind of honest reckoning and, and looking back. And I really do feel like throughout this book, you're kind of trying to find that that grounding and not just answer for the reader in a kind of didactic way, like what what do we do from here? But like be honest with folks that you're asking the question of yourself and you're, you're seeking answers, and you, you you sort of want that, and and you don't know because you're not in a position of being. You know, um, like an all-knowing <laughs> uh figure, right? Because none of us are
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, well, i I would love to, to talk with you again, specifically, maybe we could talk about the the dance of liberalism and fascism because and uh, Jules mentioned that earlier mm-hmm. and, I think it's really key to the moment that we're in, and you know, during uh u s election years, presidential election years, it gets harder and harder to tell these truths. And I think it's so important that you are continuing to do that. But, yeah, thank you, Beatrice, for what you said. And you know, it's it's you know, that I, I am I think in the end, you know, even though this is like it's maybe seemingly like my one of my least like classically political <laughs> works, I think in in lots of ways, it's more demanding than anything I've written before in terms of what I think this moment of intersecting and overlapping crises, demands of all of us. Um, I mean, I think, I think that the scale of change that is required is, is unprecedented. And I say that knowing chapters in history when things have changed very quickly. Um, But I mean, this has been a very terrifying summer and it, you know, it's, it's only going to get scarier. Um, And we are all going to have to figure out how to live together on less land Um, Even if we do all the right things Mm -hmm. and we either become more monstrous, more eugenicist, Mm -hmm. more fascist, or we radically change our values. Right. Mm -hmm. And that is, that's a, that's like an underlying we, at least when it comes to me, you know Um, I'm like, and so I can't write something like that or or say something like that and ask that of others, (laughs) if I'm not willing to ask that of myself and actually fess up to my many hypocrisies and contradictions, you know, um, that we all so, have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no. yeah.
1: Well, I think that's the perfect place to leave it. I know you have to run, you have a hard out, so we don't want to keep you anymore. We kept you up just past one minute past when you were supposed <laughs> to go, but we will definitely take you up on, uh, coming back. And I wish we had known that we could have been talking to you about COVID back in 2021, but, um, <laughs> You know, we'll make up for lost time. I was too speechless. Time. Okay. Fair, fair, fair. <laughs> and again, uh, Naomi's book is called Doppelganger, A Trip into the Mirror World. Patrons, thank you so much for supporting the show. We couldn't do any of this without you. To support the show, become a patron at patreon.com slash pod to get access to our second weekly bonus episode and an entire back catalog of bonus episodes. And if you'd like to help us out a little bit more... Share the show with your friends, post about your favorite episodes, pick up a copy of Health Communism, and pre-order Jules' new book, A Short History of Trans Misogyny, at your local bookstore, or request them at your local library, and follow us at deathpanel underscore. As always, Medicare for All Now, Solidarity Forever, Stay Alive Another Week.